Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Strecker. This is an independent, ad-free, listener-supported podcast. To become a supporter, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Archaeology has changed a whole lot over the past century plus. Uh, I remember in high school learning about Heinrich Schliemann, who's an infamous historical figure. He was a guy who uh, was a big Homer fanboy. He was really into the Iliad and the Odyssey, and he wanted to find Troy. And he found a spot in what is now Turkey where he believed Troy was. He dug there, and he used methods that would be not acceptable to current archaeology. A lot of heavy equipment, a lot of just brushing things aside because he was on a treasure hunt. And Heinrich Schliemann, I mean, he did find, he did find an ancient city there, but he probably destroyed just as much knowledge as he ended up creating, if not more so. Archaeologists nowadays are much more judicious in how they dig up the past. It's less about treasure hunting and blowing things up, and more about, say, using lasers and working in cooperation with, you know, local governments and the people who already live there and that kind of thing. And recently, I got my hands on a book from National Geographic called Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs, which is quite the title, extremely evocative. And I got to talk to one of the lead editors and writers, Ann R. Williams, and we talked about what went into the book, which is uh, meant for a popular audience. It's one of those books that's like a hundred things that you should know about and are really cool, and I had a lot of fun with it. We talked about the history of archaeology itself, what went into the book, and how the field has changed and is changing. Uh, it was a really good conversation, so enjoy. And Williams, hello. Hi. Hi. So uh, I've spent some time with your book, uh, Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs, and there is a lot in there, but um, why, don't, why don't you tell listeners a bit um, what the book is, how you got involved with it, and uh, what they could find inside? Well, the book was conceived of as being 100 of the most interesting and impactful archaeological discoveries ever made. And I was brought in because I was, for many years, a staff writer at National Geographic magazine. And I have retired from that position now, but I had done some work for National Geographic books and they knew about me. And so they thought at the beginning of this project, well, maybe I would be a good person to put together an initial list of 100 discoveries. Well, I did. Um, it was very easy for me to put together. Well, I did the first 80 right off the top of my head and then sort of, you know, filled in a few after a little bit of research. And then there were some people at National Geographic who um, had suggestions, had favorites. And so we came up with a list. Well, then the editors at National Geographic Books, realized that I would probably be a good editor for this tome. Um, and in fact, they wanted me to write some of it. There, there wasn't enough time in the schedule for me to write the entire thing, but I ended up writing about a third of it, and then I edited the other two-thirds. 
I also wrote the final chapter. We sort of did an addendum at, at the end, and we, we put together a list of technologies that are really revolutionizing archaeology right now. They are taking archaeology into a future as a science that we never would have imagined 20 or 30 years ago. So what we have is a book that takes us from really the Laetoli footsteps in Tanzania that were found by the Leakies, that were laid down by creatures that looked very much like us, 3.3 some million years ago, all right through to the sinking of the Titanic in April 1912. And so it really, the book really is a wonderful record of the high points of human achievement, I think. Um, you can read it right through from cover to cover and I think take that away from it. You can also, it, it was also conceived so that people could dive in and if they have two minutes, they can just read one chapter. The chapters are really short. I think every chapter is a really good read. Every chapter talks about discoveries and adventures and explorations and personalities of adventurers. Um, and so I am really quite happy with it as a package. Yeah, uh, when I was reading it, I definitely uh, jumped around. Um, the first thing I turned to actually was uh, Jamestown, because, I don't know, I was attracted to ghoulish, horrible things. But um, <laughs> I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you about the two sort of different timelines in the book, because there's one timeline that you mentioned already, which is just the chronological age of things that people find, uh -huh. going from, from prehistory, like pre homo sapien history, all the way up to the 20th century with the Titanic. But the other timeline in there is the timeline of the field of archaeology. Um, what is the oldest thing or the first thing that was discovered or found in the book? And what is the most recent thing to have been discovered and found in the book? And what happens to the field of archaeology um, bookended by those two events? You mean, what is the earliest ar archaeological discovery in terms of... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Or, or what are some of the earliest ones? Some of the early ones were, for instance, the Rosetta Stone, which was found when Napoleon invaded Egypt now more than 200 years ago. There were engineers working on um, shoring up the foundation of a fort, I think, near the north coast of Egypt. And one of the engineers saw an old stone that had been kind of repurposed and stuck in a wall. And it had what he thought were interesting markings on it. And he sort of set it aside for consideration by some of the scientists who were tasked with accompanying Napoleon and doing a survey of everything there was to see and discover in Egypt more than 200 years ago. And the 
one of the scientists took a look at this stone and said, hmm, you know, this really is very interesting. It has three different kinds of writing on it. And of course, it turned out to be the key to deciphering the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, which until that moment had, had really not been able to be read. People could sort of identify the names of a few queens, but aside from that, they didn't have a clue. And it was the discovery of that stone which allowed Jean-François Champollion to figure out how hieroglyphs functioned. And by the way, we are coming up this September to the 200th anniversary of Champollion's announcement that he had cracked the hieroglyphic code. So this is very exciting for those of us who are interested in hieroglyphs and the history of how ancient Egyptian texts happened to be deciphered. Uh, that's just one of the early discoveries. Okay. What's one of the most recent discoveries in the book? One of the most recent discoveries, I, I think, is probably the discovery of the Clotilda in, I believe it was Alabama. Um, it is one of, if not the last slave ship that was brought to the United States. And it was, if I remember the story correctly, it was brought in illegally. And then the ship was scuttled and sat at the bottom of a river until it was very recently um, discovered and investigated. And I think they've been able to retrieve some of the ship. It's turned into a, a huge community project because there are, I believe, descendants of people who were brought to the United States on the Clotilda. They are very interested in not only um, preserving this ship, but telling the story of this horrible moment in US history. So that's one of the most recent things that has been discovered. Another one that is a favorite of mine comes from the United Kingdom. About 3,000 years ago, near the east coast of England, there was a small village of well huts. Um, they were thatched, roofed, wattle and daub walls, maybe a couple dozen people living together there. They were hunting and fishing and doing a little bit of farming, doing a little bit of everything to sort of survive. And their settlement was right on the edge of a river tributary. And this is very important because at one point, we don't know why, we don't know how, but the, the place was set afire. Maybe a spark from a fireplace hit one of the thatched roofs. At any, at any rate, the whole place started to go up in flames and the people fled. And they left everything just as it was 
when they were doing whatever they were doing when the fire broke out. And so you have these wonderful things that the archaeologists found. You know, it's not like King Tut's mask, but they are wonderful, very quiet moments that speak to the people who live there. For instance, somebody seems to have been having breakfast and the archaeologist found a ceramic bowl with a spoon that was still in it with remnants of the porridge that the person was eating. So you can just imagine this person sitting at a table in his or her home, thatched roofed home. The alert goes out that there's a fire starting to rage through this small community. The person gets up, leaves breakfast with the spoon in the bowl and runs away. And this, um, this table, this bowl with the spoon in it was preserved for archeologists to find just a few years ago. And a lot of the things in this small village were preserved because the village was right on the edge of water. Um, and all of the biodegradable things, um, they didn't rot. They were preserved in the moist earth at the bottom of this tributary. So it really was a gold mine for archaeologists, a real snapshot at how people lived in Neolithic Britain, um, which was just really brilliant. And the archeologists were wonderful because this was found in a quarry that was used to extract clay to make bricks. And it's a very famous quarry. Um, many of the Victorian buildings that you see around Britain were made from bricks made out of clay that came from this quarry. And so the quarry was willing to allow the archaeologists to come in and work for some time. But of course, the quarry couldn't rope that part of its operations off forever. And so the archaeologists had to work like crazy for many months. In fact, I think they even extended the time that they were supposed to be working there. They worked through the winter, right through the winter, to get all of these things up out of the ground. Um, and it really was a heroic effort on, on the on the part of the archaeologists. And, and I believe everything is um, in a museum now and being curated and prepared for display um, near the, the site there. So uh, it's just another wonderful story. It's not particularly photogenic. It's not, it's not a treasure um, in the classical sense of gold and glittering goodies, but it is a wonderful repository of information about that time and that place. Yeah, I mean, I like that you mentioned that it's not a treasure with gold and glitter and goodies. And um, I think with when a lot of people think about archaeology, they think about maybe, or lay people at least, think about treasure hunting. You know, they imagine Howard Carter um, finding Tutankhamun's tomb and, you know, finding a whole bunch of gold. But I like it that you have an example where it is uh, things that were important to people's everyday life kind of in situ with the bowl and the porridge. And that gives us a great deal of information about just ordinary folks as opposed to like kings or priests or emperors or other, you know, fancy people. Uh, I like that. 
Well, the wonderful thing about archaeology is that it encompasses all of that. It encompasses those moments when you do come across something spectacular. Although I've got to say that archaeologists hope that that will not happen because as you can imagine, it's very difficult when you're trying to be a scientist and, and dealing with all of the publicity and paperwork that that arises when you find something like that. But archaeology encompasses that as well as these quieter moments that tell us a lot about the people who came before us in a way that is not glittering and not golden, but every bit as valuable for us looking back and trying to learn about the, the people who populated this earth before us. So I, I do want to get back to my question about the story of archaeology, but I also want to ask, how much of these finds were people specifically looking for something? And how much of them were incidental discoveries? Uh, do archaeologists go out there and think, I'm going to go hunt down this unknown tomb or this person who's buried somewhere or this lost city? Or is it more about happenstance? Is it more of like, we are going to go examine this area and whatever we find, we find? Or is it like some kind of mixture of two of the two? Well, that's a very interesting question, and that gets to the ways in which archaeology has changed. Back in the day of Heinrich Schliemann, who oh, yeah. dug a great hole through the site of Troy, he was he had something in mind that he was looking for, and he was bound and determined that he was going to find it. And he did indeed find glittering goody, golden goodies. Um, Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon were actually looking for King Tutankhamun. Another archaeologist named Theodore Davis had been working in the Valley of the Kings, and he had found um, a repository of some things that had Tutankhamun's name on them. And he assumed that, oh, well, you know, that was all that was going to be found of this, of this until then unknown king, Tutankhamun. But Carter and Carnarvon were convinced that there might be something more to Tutankhamun, and they were actually on the hunt for, um, for his burial. Modern archaeologists don't do that. Um, it is considered to be very unscientific to say, I am looking for X or I am looking for Y. You, you pick a site and you dig and you find what you find. Um, and sometimes you do that and it's a complete surprise. Another one of my great uh, favorites in this book is a site called Hukok in Israel. It is on the top of a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, one of the most spectacularly beautiful settings that I have ever been to in an archaeological context. We would go out to the dig every morning and just look out over this beautiful landscape of olive trees and look down to the Sea of Galilee, and it was glorious. But the story of this discovery is that J Jody Magnus at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill was interested in that period of 
Israeli history. She was interested in the time around AD 400. Um, it was a time when people assumed that the Jews in that part of the world were, were not doing very well because they were under the boot of Rome. And Jody was interested in this time period because she had been weighing in on it, but she had not actually dug um, um, a site from that time period. And so she was looking for a site that, you know, might take her back to that time. And she identified this site through the literature and dug down through an Arab village, a modern Arab village that was abandoned um, actually quite recently, and got down to a medieval layer and then underneath the medieval layer started to realize that she had a synagogue. Now, she expected to find a synagogue that was like the synagogue about three miles away at a site called Capernaum. And those of you who have been to this site will maybe remember, it is a very large synagogue floor. Very it's just, um, it's just plain stones. It has a plain stone uh, floor. And when Jody got down to the, um, the synagogue floor from about AD 400, she realized that the entire floor was covered with spectacular mosaics. Now, some of the mosaics turned out to be really um, wonderfully fun. There's a, uh, there's a vignette, for instance, of the whole Red Sea adventure in the Bible, where Moses is leading his people out of Egypt, and the Red Sea parts and lets him through, and then the Red Sea crashes back together and upends the Pharaoh's chariots and horses and soldiers. And you see that in this mosaic. You see a fish eating one of the Pharaoh's soldiers. You see chariots and horses upended by the waves. It is really quite marvelous. On the other hand, there are parts of that mosaic floor that are not only extraordinary, but they are unique. There is a three-tiered mosaic that shows two... Um, what shall I say, um, very important men meeting together in, in the middle of this tier. And they're flanked on the one hand by an army that includes elephants, which makes everybody think of the Maccabees. And on the other hand, um, by um, probably priests of Jerusalem, the second tier shows what we think is perhaps the high priest of Jerusalem in the middle of an arcade, also with some priests. And then the bottom tier shows a battle. Now, there are a lot of different interpretations of this mosaic. Jody thinks it may be the, um, the uh, mythical meeting between Alexander the Great and the high priest of Jerusalem. Other people have other interpretations, but the point is that not only is this mosaic unique, but it is 
amazingly well done. Karen Britt, the mosaic expert, says that the tesserae, the small pieces of stone that were used to create this mosaic, were every bit as fine as the mosaic stones that she found in royal mosaics in Turkey. So this is an indication that the people who thought the Jews were not doing very well under the Romans have a little bit more thinking to do because clearly the Jews were able to get together enough money and Jody now thinks that it, it was quite a number of villages who put their money together. But this mosaic in that covered this entire floor now it seems in this huge synagogue must have been very expensive. And so, you know, clearly the Jews were making money and willing to put together their money to create this wonderful thing. And it was at the top of the hill, so it must have been a showcase um, for miles and miles around with this spectacular view of the landscape and the Sea of Galilee. So Jody wasn't looking for this, to circle back to your question. She had no idea that she was going to be finding this. It was a complete surprise, and I think has, has completely changed her career. This is, the, this is the project that she is going to be working on for the rest of her career. Um, and, and it has been a very exciting discovery for those of us who were privileged enough to, to have been part of it and, you know, in my case, to have covered it as a journalist. Um, so to, to answer your question, you know, sometimes, most especially back in the olden days, archaeologists were definitely looking for things. And nowadays, um, archaeologists are more picking a site because it's interesting uh, and digging down and finding whatever they find. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember learning in school about Heinrich Schliemann and he was like the quote unquote founder, I don't want to call him that, but of maybe modern archaeology, but very much somebody with like a goal in mind, um, maybe to the point of self-deception, thinking that he like found a mask of Agamemnon which may or may not have been Agamemnon's mask. But yeah, it seems so much more measured now. And also, you got at something that I wanted to ask about as well, which was when you were talking about the you know, initial narrative of you know, Jews in that area not doing well under the Romans uh, in the 400s, but in fact, they seemed to be you know, able to put together a fairly thriving community. Um, that overturned a kind of prominent historical narrative, or at least it complicated it. Um, which discoveries in that book complicated the historical narratives when they were found? What, where, are there any instances where, you know, you find physical evidence of something, then you go, oh, we need to reconsider our narratives, or we need to reconsider the kind of like consensus that we sort of built our history books around? Well, that does happen. Um actually quite uh, quite frequently. And one of the criterion that we used for this book is exactly that history-changing aspect of a discovery. One of my favorite discoveries, another one of many, 
is a discovery that an archaeologist named Tom Dillahay found at a site called Monte Verde in Chile. Now, the background to this is there were many people who for many years had a very clear idea of when people first came to the Americas. Um, they thought it was, you know, round about, I think, um, well, I can't remember exactly, uh, maybe 9,000 years ago. And, uh, and, and they stuck to it. And there, there was a sort of a signature site, Clovis, I believe it's in New Mexico. And that was sort of the, indicate, the indicator site for them, that this was the date when humans were first here and they were creating tools and they were hunting and you know that was it period end of report the scientists have made up their name there had made up their minds tom dillahay got wind of a site in chile in i think the 1970s and went down to excavate it and found he he basically found signs of people creating a campfire, cooking food, um, using biodegradable materials. And when he took, when he did carbon-14 dating, his jaw just about dropped. Um, the dates that he were getting was getting were so extraordinarily early. So instead of humans being there 9,000 years ago, he was pushing that back to 14,000 years ago. And I think he's even pushed it back further than that in the intervening years. So this was a huge leap and it was such a leap that the people who were so invested in the Clovis site just could could not believe that 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 date could be true. And for many years that really affected Tom's career negatively, I think. He was just believed by many people to be kind of uh, a kook, um, <laughs> that, that he didn't know what he was doing. But uh, as it turned out, he was absolutely correct. And there are increasing numbers of sites now that um, are showing that humans were here long, long before anybody 20 or 30 years ago thought they were here. And it is completely revolutionizing the field of the study of the first humans here in the Western Hemisphere. The other um, thing from that part of the world that is really revolutionizing how we think about the Western Hemisphere is all sorts of information that's starting to come out of the Amazon. People assumed for many years, many decades, that there was really nothing in the Amazon. And what um, aerial photography, for instance, is starting to show us is that there were very large geoglyphs created in the landscape 
that must have been made by somebody. Um, it's not like there wasn't anybody living in the Amazon. So people have started to investigate and realize that people in the Amazon figured out how to use that soil, how to farm that soil in a way that allowed them to grow crops and allowed them to survive there. So it's just really completely changing the picture of what we think about the Amazon. There's another site um, that I was very lucky enough to visit and report on. It's called El Cano in Panama. And this is another sort of paradigm breaker in the Americas. There is a lovely Panamanian Spanish archaeologist named Julia Mayo, um, who is digging at that site. And there were many people for decades and generations who believed that there was nothing between the Maya in the north with their stone pyramids at places like Tikal and Copan and the Inca in the south with their fabulous roads and amazing stone walls. Um, these experts thought, well, you know, it's all rainforest and there's nothing there. And and so they didn't even bother to look. That was the crazy thing. They, they thought there was nothing there and so they didn't bother to look. But Julia Mayo was convinced that she had kind of figured out where, the, where there might be a burial. And she had read the literature that the, or the chronicles that the Spanish conquistadors had written. Now, <clears throat> working backwards, she thought, well, you know, perhaps uh, societies hadn't changed that much. So the, the chronicles were written in, you know, the 1600s, but perhaps there were people living in that area in about AD 900, AD 800, that, that, followed some of the same traditions that continued on into the 1600s. And she did geomagnetic resonance imaging of a field um, where she kind of thought there might be a burial and, um, and was convinced that she was right, convinced she would, had found something. And <clears throat> I got there when she and her team had dug 15 feet beneath the surface of the field they were working in. And I was there with a photographer named David Coventry. And we stood on the edge of that pit for two weeks, just looking at each other, thinking, oh my goodness, you know, the pottery and the bones that are coming up here might make an interesting story, but they're not photographic. They're not photogenic. And so, you know, what are we going to do for a National Geographic magazine story? Well, the dig was due to shut down right on Easter Friday because the site was right near a river and the rains were going to come and the river was going to flood and, and then the river would flood the site. Um, and so, um, and so we were all thinking, well, you know, I mean, we did our best and this is not going to be a story. And on Good Friday, the gold started to come out of the ground. 
and it was very exciting. It was an afternoon. We lined all of the cars up around the rim of this now deep, very deep pit, turned on the headlights so that the archaeologists and the artists and the photographers could continue to work. And they worked after dark. And of course, you know, you have to get that stuff up out of the ground um, because if you don't, looters will come in. Um, so we got everything out of the ground and got it to Panama City and Julia shut down the site and then came back the next year and found all sorts of wonderful things. These were warrior chiefs that were buried in all of their finery. They were buried in um, golden, great golden pendants that sat on their chests and belts of gold beads that were as fat as olives and sashes that must have been studded with tiny seed uh, seed shaped um, beads of gold um, gold earrings um, you know all sorts of you know wonderful classical treasures um, that Julia had found and but she found it because she didn't believe the current wisdom she didn't believe that there was nothing to be found between the Maya in the north and the Inca in the south and she's just one of a growing number of archaeologists now who are beginning to look in the rainforests um, just because People had a culture that was based on things that were biodegradable does not mean that they did not have a culture that wasn't sophisticated and, and able to do things like mine gold and, um, and, um, and turn gold into, you know, fabulous, beautiful things. So again, it's a whole different way of looking at the landscape and in doing archaeology. Um, archaeologists are finding things in places that they hadn't looked, where they hadn't looked before, and really changing how how history was written, which, which is very exciting, um, aside from the treasure. It's very exciting to be rewriting history. Yeah. Um, one thing that I really have to ask, and I think a lot of listeners are probably, you know, thinking about, um, is artifacts can be a big source of contention between countries. Um, just off the top of my head, there's a lot of stuff in the British Museum that makes a lot of other countries mad. Greece would love to have the Elgin marbles back. Uh, they also have a, they've got a Moai head. And I know Easter Islanders or Rapa Nuians uh, would also love to have that repatriated back to where it came from. And, you know, archaeology does have a history of a lot of Westerners going into non-Western areas and maybe not looting things, but sort of rolling on in and taking a look at stuff and um, then absconding with it. Uh, how does the field of archaeology uh, hopefully avoid doing that? Um, who gets to dig things up? And how does the field make sure that one thing, once things are dug up, they're dug up in a responsible way so we don't have another Elgin Marbles situation on our hands? 
Well, that's a, a very good question. Thank you for asking it. And it does point to the one of the ways in which archaeology has changed over the last many decades. Um, my specialty is ancient Egypt. And so when Europeans and Americans first started to go to Egypt and began to dig, um, when they first started to do it, I mean, they were just, I think, mostly able to cart things away. And then as the political situation in Egypt started to change, around about the time of the discovery of the tomb of King Tutankhamun, um, the, the rules were different. And um, a lot of countries, um, Egypt included in those days, sort of made a division so that the people who were investing time and money and energy digging things um, who came from abroad got some of the things that they had discovered, but other things stayed in the country where they were found. Now the situation is very different. In Egypt, everything stays in Egypt. And the other thing, and, and a lot of countries are making rules about that. You know, what is um, the permitting to come in and conduct an excavation is very strict. It is in some places very difficult for a foreigner to come in and get a permit in some places, not in all places, but in some places. And um, in places like Egypt, for instance, Egypt is now beginning to do its own excavations. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't foreigners excavating there. Um, there are, but there are fewer foreigners coming in and excavating. There are the classic teams from the University of Chicago, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, um, They've had concessions in Egypt that fortunately they have been able to renew and they do fine work. But the Egyptians are now stepping in and they have been trained all over the world in some of the best universities with archaeology programs in the world and they are now and and they are also training there in Egypt and they are now excavating things in their own country that are staying right there in Egypt. The other thing that Egypt is doing is it is inaugurating a series of brand new state-of-the-art museums that are just jaw-dropping. Um, many of your listeners may remember the Parade of Pharaohs some months ago, oh, during yes. which the mummies from the Egyptian Museum in Cairo were moved from that museum to a new state-of-the-art museum. It's the Museum of the... The National Museum of Egyptian Civilization, I think is what it's called. I have not been able to see it in person, but... From what I have seen on film clips, it is just stunning. 
The other thing that we're all waiting for is the Grand Egyptian Museum. It is going to be, I believe, the biggest archaeological museum housing antiquities in the world. It is a state-of-the-art facility costing one billion with a B dollars that was built on the Giza Plateau right um, right within view of the pyramids at Giza. I, I was very privileged to get a tour of that while it was under construction and it is so gorgeous. The exhibition space is just breathtaking. You walk in to this fabulous atrium and there's one of the colossal statues of Ramses II right there. And it is just going to be a wonderful place to tour. The other thing is that back in another section of the campus, they have a bunch of state-of-the-art laboratories where Experts, Egyptian experts now are taking many of the things that are coming out of the Egyptian Museum in Cairo and they are conserving them. They are doing all of the modern things you need to do to um, allow these artifacts to survive. Um, and, and then the artifacts will be put on display at this museum. It's called the Grand Egyptian Museum. We call it um, we call it the Gem Grand Egyptian Museum, which I think is a brilliant name for this. At any rate, it's a wonderful facility. And so the, this is these are some of the trends that are going on in Egypt. And you know, at some point, the politicians will sort out things like the Elgin Marbles, um, but but now. Archaeology is, is changing in ways that I think will eliminate those sorts of situations in the future. That is uh, good to hear. Uh, in other ways, uh, other ways archaeology is changing that you've alluded to, alluded to is technologically. Uh, in what ways is uh, new technology changing the field? Oh, wow. Well, this is such a wonderful arena to to read about and to think about. One of the ways I'm sure your listeners have read about is the use of LIDAR. It is a certain kind of aerial photography that is put through specialized software and what it can do when it is done in places like the rainforest of northern Guatemala is it can strip away the canopy of trees. Well, so it, it, computers are fabulously patient, um, which is one of the reasons why I love them when they're behaving themselves. And what this computer software does with aerial imaging is it looks between the leaves of the rainforest canopy. What you can imagine if you were trying to do as a human, it would be just mind-blowingly tedious and impossible. But a computer just says, oh, well, I could do this. and looks through every gap between every leaf in the canopy that you have photographed. And then it extrapolates what 
all of these data points that it has gathered and it can give an image of what is on the ground. What it has done in, in terms of figuring out what kinds of myocytes are in northern Guatemala, it has shown temples and all sorts of structures that the Mayanists had no idea were there and would have taken decades and generations to find just with boots on the ground tromping around the rainforest in person. So you get this from LIDAR, you get this fabulous snapshot that tells you um, what it is that you have at your site, how many temples and where they are and where you can go looking for them and what you might excavate next and what you should put on your map when you're making the map of your site. The other very, one of the other very cool things that's happening is the use of satellite photography. There is a wonderful archaeologist named Sarah Parkhack, who is a professor at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And she is an expert in looking at satellite imagery and using filters on satellite images to be able to tease out traces of archaeological sites, archaeological structures. Um, just for instance, in the sands of Egypt, if there is a mud brick wall underneath the sand, if you look at a satellite image of that site and you filter it in a certain way, you will see that mud brick wall because the mud brick absorbs water in a different way from the way the sand absorbs it. And that is picked up by the satellite image in the filtered version in a very different way from the sand. And so you get a picture of that. Well, Sarah, so Sarah Parkak has been doing that for years, and she literally wrote the textbook on how to use these satellite images to to discover archaeological features. But but she took that one step further. The um, TED Talks offered uh, started to offer a million dollar big idea prize some years ago. And Sarah thought, well, I'm going to put in for that prize because I have an idea. What we can do is we can crowdsource this. So instead of having me sit at my computer for hours and hours and hours and hours on end looking through these satellite images, why don't we create a place online that's kind of like a game that people can play um, but that interested citizen scientists can help us look through satellite imagery. And she partnered with the country of Peru and got a whole bunch of satellite images. And what she did was she, she created tiles, in other words, a part of the satellite image. So there was no way that anybody playing this crowdsourcing game could ever figure out where it was that they were looking at in the satellite image. So it wasn't like this was going to encourage looters. 
Um, but a lot of us, uh, I think something like that, that there were thousands of us around the world who played this game for several months. I used to, I was still working for National Geographic magazine at that point, And I used to take my lunch hour and I would do this every day, looking, look through as many tiles as I could get through. And you were looking for a number of things. You were looking for looting, signs of looting. Um, you were looking for signs of perhaps an archeological site that had not been discovered yet. And you were looking for signs that modern development was perhaps encroaching on an archeological site. And at the end of that experiment, all of us citizen scientists ended up identifying something like 700 major sites in Peru that the Ministry of Culture did not have in its database. So that was a great, um, it was a great success as far as Sarah was concerned. And it was proof that that kind of thing could work. Now, I think she has another country in mind and um, she's been sort of very busy doing the digital pivot for the COVID era that we're living through. So she sort of put that on the back burner. But I, for one, uh, I just can hardly wait for her to roll out the next citizen science um, experiment and for all of us to play and see what else we can find. So there are things like this that are really revolutionizing the um, the practice of archaeology and really taking it into a future that none of us could have imagined even a decade ago, which is really so exciting. That is awesome. Uh, it sounds like we've come a long way since Heinrich Schliemann, and I love to hear that. Absolutely. <laughs> cool. So once again, uh, what's the book and where can people find it? The book is Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs. It is on Amazon, and it is a National Geographic book. And National Geographic is now part of the Disney Consortium. So you can look at the Disney Store online and find it there as well. And, and it is appearing in bookstores, too. So it, it is a wonderfully fat tome. I, was, I had only, of course, when I was working on it, I had only seen it in a PDF. And I was astounded when I got the copies in the mail. They are really fat. It's a substantial volume. It, it really is um, quite wonderful to hold and quite wonderful to read. Um, and I think it, it works for, you know, both armchair travelers. You don't have to go anywhere to really travel through the pages of this book but also for people who are thinking about traveling um, when we are able to do that again safely, you can just open the pages of this book and think, where do I want to visit an archeological site? And open the book and pick a site, off you go. That's wonderful. Uh, Anne Williams, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been great fun. As always, the Weird History Podcast is written, hosted, and edited by me, Joe Streckert. Our website and visual assets are by Sarah Giffro of Upsupt Creative. We are recorded in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.